there's also that as well, isn't it? It's like, it's never a good time to just like follow what you want to do in life. Just go on with it. The traditional route to success, getting a nine to five job and slowly working your way to the top is over. With more and more people turning their passions into businesses, our generation are supplementing their income through pursuits outside of the day job. In our series, On The Side, we talk to those who have strayed from the rat race by turning their side hustles into profitable ventures. We'll be diving deep into their success stories, their tools for survival, and how to get ahead when the cards are stacked against you. I'm Chris Adams, alongside my co-host, Redmond Bacon, and this is On The Side. Hello and welcome to On The Side. Today is kind of a special episode for me because I will be interviewing my own sister, Sarah, who has started her own business when she was at university. And they are a film studio and they create a bunch of short films and they're looking to span out and tell stories of a diverse range of characters. And it's a very interesting thing for me because I have followed this story from the very beginning. I've often played a part in some of the promos for some of the short films, which I will probably get into later in the episode. And I've really seen it flourish. Awesome, man. Like you said, it's a special episode for you. My first curiosity is, what was the Bacon household like? Like, you're all film buffs. Is this, is this the same for the rest of your family? And how did you guys get into it? So I wouldn't say the whole family are film buffs. The other side of the family are all lawyers. So sometimes at the uh, dinner conversation, it switches between film and law. And then during the law conversations, all the film guys get bored. And then during the film conversation, all the lawyers want to start talking about the law again. So it's a real um, give and take with this. Is there a compromise in terms of uh, you just talk about law films the entire dinner or? Like the verdict. Yeah. 12 Angry Men. No, I, it's, it's sometimes it's quite, it's quite interesting, but I would say my parents have always been quite into film. They've always been showing films from a young age. I remember my dad took me to see 300 when I was 12. He just lied to the uh, vendor and said, yeah, yeah, he's 15. Don't worry about it. So that was that was really fun. So they've always been taking me to films, you know. So I feel like I grew up really with a passion for cinema. And I think maybe some of that rubbed off on my sister. And do you think that then flowed down to you? Do you think that's where you got the inspiration and love for film yourself? I think we've always helped each other, actually. So she's given me a lot of advice with the industry and with a lot of connections. And I have helped her with some of her short films, especially in terms of the starting stage. So looking at the scripts and maybe just some odd jobs as well. So I'm sure we'll get into this later in the episode. Well, I had a look at some of the films earlier. I didn't see you on any of the credits, mate. So you might have to, uh, might have to bring that up in today's episode. If you've helped out, we can uh, try and get you snuck, snuck in on the end of the credits. Sarah, how are you? Hello, I'm good. Thank you. How are you guys? Yeah, we're doing well. Chris was in uh, Croatia just last week, right? Yeah, um, I saw the uh, the advice regarding the air bridge and I got a, a phone call from a friend saying, I'm booking an Airbnb in Croatia, are you coming? So my answer was immediately, immediately yes. Bit of, a, bit of a strange one though, obviously holidays are a bit limited at the moment, it was very much sat by the pool, mask on. Um, but you know what, like really surreal, like I've never felt like that about holiday, like I feel like I've been stuck inside for months, like you know, adjusting to the pandemic and doing the things you love that you normally do outside, inside, so like home workouts in your bedroom and stuff like that. And just to be out was really weird. Sitting in a restaurant was strange. But um, no, do you know what? Yeah, super glad I got away. Um, and that was the the reason why we haven't had a pod um, in a little bit longer than we usually do. So my apologies for that. Red was ready to do them and I was too busy sunning it up. Um, so yeah, here we are. Good to be invited on. I don't really have a voice for the radio, but um, I'm going to try at the very least to say some eloquent stuff about um, about the company and uh, yeah, about what I'm up to. It could be worse. It could be like me. I have a face for radio, so that's always the worst. Um, <laughs> yeah, no worries. So tell us about Try Hard. Let's let's know a little bit about the story, how it how it came to be, and um, yeah, and let the listeners know what it's all about. It's a funny story. I think I never necessarily wanted to get into film I didn't kind of wake up like one of those filmmaking you know usual people who sort of are fanatic about films watch every film they've ever seen you know every film that's ever been made and um, have a sort of working knowledge of basically Redmond um, but every you know working knowledge of every film that was ever made but when when I got to university I was sort of really interested in um in like working in, in the media in some form and working with like I don't really know what I was wanting to do I mean I did a lot of music events when I was a kid I sort of ran 
some uh, acoustic nights in central London when I was like 15, had like Ed Sheeran before he blew up, um, come play, which was pretty fun. And just kind of got really into organizing stuff. And so my, when I was at university, my best friend, Nick Morris and I were sort of in rooms sort of next to each other and spent all the time sort of coming up with weird ideas or setting up club nights and doing art department stuff and just all sorts. So when the kind of opportunity presented itself that we could make a film together, we did. And so <laughs> we made this short film, the first ever short film. I don't know if you've even seen it, Red, but the first ever short film we made was a, um, this, uh, this thing called the Campus Movie Fest. I don't know, I really probably shouldn't be saying this on a podcast because if anyone sees it, they'll never take me seriously as a producer. But we made this, this little short called um, The Tale of a Blind Man with a Camera for His Head or something of that ilk, which was a sort of mix of scrappy animation and pretty terrible acting. And hilariously, that film ended up winning the like initial round or something and ended up playing in Leicester Square. Although I don't know if that's actually... 100% true but that's at least what we were told at the time and I guess we, we made that film and then sort of got a bit of an itch to make something else and um, yeah I, I didn't really know what a producer was or what a producer did but we sort of learned hard and fast what what that involved and um, <clears throat> kind of wanted to make a film together Nick and I uh, so we optioned the book except we didn't option it we just took the rights I think it was out of date um this Rudyard Kipling short story called The Gate of a Hundred Sorrows which is a short story about a heroin addict in Calcutta in the early 19th century and we thought that was a easy and uh, achievable first short film which it actually wasn't but nonetheless we cracked on raised some money through a Kickstarter campaign did a promo and ended up making this short film, which was our, was our basically our film school. Um, we shot maybe like 15, no longer than that, 20 hour shoot days. Nick didn't ha- know how to use the camera. I didn't know how to run a budget. Making, cooking the whole crew stew. Our lighting technician was drunk the whole time. This kind of mad guy from up from London. So it was a real force of like, you know, being thrown into the deep end and, and, and make, making, um, making a film without really knowing what we were doing. But that was really fun. And I think we learned a lot in that process. We sort of learned what, I learned more different roles were on the film set. I kind of knew, I learned what a script looked like. I'd never really looked at scripts before. Um, we got to shoot on an Alexa, Alexa, one of the old Alexa cameras, which was fun because, you know, we'd never be allowed to do that. Um, and we got really lucky. We had a great crew. We had an amazing cast. It's sort of funny to look sometimes at the cast and where they are now. Um, of that film and yeah we sort of then sort of got known as the filmmakers and Nick and I continued to just make short films quite relentlessly for a couple of years Um, had some minor successes but nothing really major and then um, and then one day just ended up making a pretty banging short film that did really well and that's sort of been the stepping stone I guess for the rest of the rest of the career I guess it was you know we sort of learned by failing over and over again and and learned through the art of not really knowing what we were doing which was actually much cheaper than going to film school and paying to learn not that you don't know what you're doing so yeah I suppose that's kind of how it started I think I'm super excited because I didn't realize that it was so self-taught I guess when Red told me about it I thought that maybe you had gone to film school post your post your degree um so yeah it makes it sound incredibly fun I think a lot of the people we speak to um kind of do emphasize a little bit that there's a bit of a slog like it is hard hard work and not always enjoyable by the sounds of it it's been pretty fun especially when the lighting guy or the lighting guy was having a lot more fun than most people by the sounds of it I mean he was he was nuts but yeah (laughs) another story for another another podcast I have a funny anecdote about the gate of a hundred sorrows when we did the promotional video for it Saha woke me up at it was like five in the morning or four in the morning we wanted to get the morning light and we had this door I don't know where you got the door from I think it was from eBay yeah and we went up onto Wimbledon Common with this door and I was really not in the mood this was I'm not much of an early waker as as you know and we <laughs> we managed to take it all the way into the Wimbledon Common by by the lake and we shot this great promo with uh, all this fog and it it looked really cool but then the door was so heavy we decided to leave it there so if you ever want to see a piece of history you can still go to the common and find the door lurking somewhere in the woods 
that's exactly that's exactly right yeah yeah that was that was uh, again learning by doing i don't know how he managed to rope so many people in i don't know how he managed to rope you in red i don't know what was in it for you but um no complaints really especially that time of the morning yeah exactly so i read an interview with yourself um (laughs) that said you started this in 2013 in the uni library from what i understand it sounded when i read it it sounded like that was almost the fuck it let's do it moment i guess my question is how important to any entrepreneur out there anyone wanting to start a creative business how important is that fuck it let's just do it moment i mean i think ours wasn't even like a fuck it let's do it moment it was like we have no idea what we're doing so we should probably get a company right if we're gonna start something and we should probably um we should probably make this official but like i i wish i hadn't started a company then because i didn't know the implications of what it meant to have a company no one teaches you about corporation tax and vat and all that kind of crap that you sort of don't really get taught but but no it was it was really kind of it was i'm sort of glad we did it when we did it because it hasn't really it sort of stuck and i think i have kind of continued it on. You know, I think a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about what their company is and what they want to do and what they want to make and what their company name should be called. And I kind of like, don't even know where the name came from, but I think it came from when I was like obsessed with the OC, no, One Tree Hill when I was a kid and I was obsessed with one of the characters called Peyton who had a record label. And I wanted a record label when I was like 11. And that never happened. So I just used the same name for the for the film company, Try Hard. And um, yeah, it was a fuck it moment because, I mean, we really didn't know what we were doing. So we just sort of cracked on and hoped for the best. <laughs> it was a, it, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that as a sort of business strategy. But I think in some ways, like, because there wasn't any time to, like, really overthink stuff. There wasn't any time to be like, maybe calling a company Try Hard isn't necessarily the best name for people to take you seriously. Or maybe it doesn't have you know maybe you need to think about it a bit more but you know a lot of the core message of what the company's about and the kind of work we make is still the same and I, I you know it's now just me on my own um Nick's gone off to much brighter futures actually earning some money being a very successful cinematographer and so I kind of you know running it on my own and it I always call it the royal we because I do feel like it's sort of grown to be something where there's a lot of really great people who've been involved in the company over the years. And so I kind of do always re- refer to it as a we just to kind of remind everyone of everyone who helped it get to that point. But yeah, it was definitely yeah trial by fire, make a company, don't even think about it and just get on with it, which is, as I said, not the best entrepreneurial um plan but kind of worked worked out has worked out eventually no i think it's still super important i think a lot of people i'm an art for for years about ideas they have that they want to do like i i have seven things written down in a notepad that i've accumulated over the years of things i want to like side projects i want to do and i've I've touched two of them and whether those five will actually get done who knows but you need the fuck it moment to just go actually no this is something i feel passionate about this is something i want to do um But I guess, yeah, you didn't really know it was going to be something you were passionate about. What would you have done if you got six months down the line and you just lost a love for it? Would you have carried on? I mean, I think I did. I think, I mean, there was a part of me and I think it comes back to like the way we were raised um, where, you know, the idea of going to work in the media industry was never a possibility. It was always kind of, you know, have a profession, do a professional degree. So I I finished, I did my undergraduate in, in geography and went to SOAS, which is part of the University of London and did a master's in media and um, media in development studies. And I kind of thought for a while that I wanted to kind of go and work in an NGO. And then I applied to DFID and I think I did. I was the stupidest application I've ever been in in my life. It was like, if Steve and Amy go to a party, then what does Priscilla have for breakfast? Like questions that make no sense. And I don't know if that's the terrible example, but it just didn't like, I realized when I was doing that, that that just wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and I did like a few, you know, I, I did some other media stuff. I kind of, um, I kind of worked in like some running jobs in like TV and film, but I never really got on with them because I didn't like working for someone else when I like that early on, I wanted to kind of do, do my own thing, but no, it was for a long time. It didn't really, you know, there were loads of times where I thought, do you know what? This is, this isn't really, especially when Nick was sort of moving into, um more commercial stuff and um we you know the company for a while was making kind of crappy corporate videos but again it was just more 
learning and meeting crews and saving up money to sort of pay for websites and, and stuff like that. So um, it took a while to kind of really hone in on that passion. And I think like rather than chasing the dream from the top, like that's not what happened. The dreams come now. The dream is where I am now and the work I'm doing now. That's like what gets me really excited. But it was never something that I started doing. I never was like, I'm going to make some, I'm going to be a movie producer. Like I had no idea what that was. So I didn't chase that dream. I just chased the idea of making stuff that was important. And I think, um, I think as well, like I think growing up as someone who doesn't see like the world reflected around them, you know, you don't see characters that represent you in films or you, you kind of don't see that kind of representation at all then there was such an emphasis there was such an emphasis at the beginning and such a drive to make kind of lgbt films that represented you know people that i hadn't seen on screen or i wasn't seeing and so that's kind of where our work had um had sort of ended up but but no just going back to your question i think if i wasn't doing film i think part of me wanted to work in like disaster response which is basically what a producer is anyway you know i think i i, I have this like weird like fantasy of like working in like a sort of I don't know if like a, in a tsunami recovery center and like managing all the people and like figuring out how to say, I don't know, mad, but that, that was kind of the only other thing I think I'd be good at. It's just managing people and managing egos essentially, which is part of the job. Yeah, of course. hundred percent. I think as well, like what you've spoken about there is I guess the passion is about the content. So you wanted to make stuff that mattered. You wanted to make, make content that, that people engage with. Um, I think for creatives, it must be really difficult. Like I will openly admit that I do a lot of creative stuff, but I wouldn't class myself as a, as a creative. Um, but it's harder to, to kind of, you almost dilute the passion by turning it into a business sometimes. So I think it's rare to have a venture where you still enjoy building the content and it's profitable. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think actually what's interesting about the company is that, you know, I... The, the company isn't where my financial success, not, I don't, I don't really have any financial success, but if I did, it wouldn't come from try hard films. It comes from, you know, everything I learned through making stuff. You know, I got very good at making stuff for no money quite quickly into a lot of commercial production companies in, in London. Um, making music videos was the way in and, and getting, you know, cutting my teeth in putting together tiny crews and t- tiny budgets and over delivering on that meant like, I got a good in with a few, you know, bigger production companies and that sort of spiraled from making music videos for like £8,000, which were like four night shoots with like stunts and mad fire. And I don't know, the, the music videos we made back in the day, I just, I have no idea how we managed to pull them together. But, you know, that was, that was the sort of second part of the learning. And I, I think, you know, just, I think it's good to kind of talk about how people keep sustainable when they're sort of doing their side hustle. But um yeah that that's now my main source of income which is is doing commercials and working for sort of bigger and bigger clients and bigger and bigger companies and it isn't necessarily what I want to do but I think what's good about it is it's all the same it's kind of all the same skill sets the same you might be working for Nike but you're still managing egos and you might be like running around trying to pull mad things together but I think that's all good learning and so many producers that I know who don't actually do anything other than produce features or produce shorts and then they get to their debut and they have no idea about what all the different cameras are or the, what the different you know what the latest this is and how to get this lighting package on two pounds fifty so I'm definitely grateful for the the stuff that isn't this, like you know the main hustle as part of the overall hustle if that makes sense so let's talk a bit about producing and working with budget so from the very start you seem to have been very able to find money for your films so this is the hardest part if you want to make a good film you can make a bad film with no money you just get a camera and start rolling but if you want to make a film that looks professional you need money and for that a lot of people go to crowdfunding and you had a lot of success with crowdfunding. And what is the secret of that success? I think that the crowdfunding, I think there's so many videos out there, crowdfunding films are boring. And I like don't have any, um, I'm not going to apologize for saying that they're boring because they are boring and they're really kind of um, not going to make anyone want to buy into your product because it's just this sort of quite self-worthy talk to camera about your amazing film, but actually everyone's got an amazing film idea. So you need to bring them in and do something else, which is sort of even better. Um, and I met, you know, 
wonderful collaborator of mine, Harry, and he pitched me an idea for our sort of first short film for the crowdfunder, um, which was that we'd go down to Hastings and we'd sell um, Lilt, Diet Lilt for 99p. And the kind of joke was it was like a mockumentary about us trying to raise money for the film through um, selling, selling Lilt to strangers in Hastings, which is where the film was set. Except when we went down to Hastings, it was the rainiest day of the year and it was also National Pirate Day. So we were sort of like, it, the, the mockumentary became even more comical because um, it was, it, we were literally in a storm. Um, and actually, and then the gag at the end is, we only sold five Lilt, so we need 3,919 five pounds, five P or whatever to finish making this film. And, and I think that kind of got people in. I think people were excited by it. But I do think as well, we were sort of in the heyday of Kickstarter. I think Kickstarter's gone pretty out of fashion. I don't think raising, I wouldn't finance a film on Kickstarter again. I think you've kind of done, it worked at the time for what we're trying to do, but that, that was a pretty hard, hard thing to get people to sort of want to give you a shot. And I think when you get to the like eighth or ninth Kickstarter, people are just like, go away. <laughs> um, you need to have a really good case for why you're, why you're doing it. But I would definitely encourage anyone who's doing a Kickstarter to really like not just think of it as an afterthought. It's like the key, it's a key campaign. And there's you know, a friend of mine just did a Kickstarter during just after lockdown. And it was the most, one of the most successful animation Kickstarters I think even Kickstarter had seen. They like tripled their target within like a week um, just because of the way the director had engaged with the audience and got people super excited about their project. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was cool to watch. But no, raising money for shorts is, is really hard. I have fond memories of this trip to Hastings, which I was also roped in on. It was beset with, with errors the whole time, not only the rain, there was also the... Um, we went to the wholesalers to try and get all the lilts. And I remember them being... They were just being really arsy about it. I think you had a card which said you could go to the wholesalers, but they were like, why are you here? It's usually people buying for their for their off licenses and this kind of thing. And then the locals were like, why should we spend 99p on a lilt? Because we can get them for 50p. And we're like, okay, <laughs> don't take it too seriously. And then we tried to film in one of the gaming halls. And then obviously the staff came and just got really annoyed at us as well. But the pirates really made it. I think that really was a stroke of, of luck for the film because it made it just seem like one of these really bizarre things. And it, it added a certain a certain vibe to it. But you also have raised money through big name producers and by getting big names on board. So for one of your shorts, you had um, Ian McKellen. And you've also had Stephen Fry, yeah. So by having these names, and obviously quite visibly uh, gay men in the media, how has that helped sort of to boost these films? I mean, I think it's also funny, you know, for the first short film we had, we had John Logan as our exec as well, who um, wrote some pretty prolific um, Hollywood movies. And I think it just like makes people, takes you a bit more seriously to, if you, people think you've had of support from some from someone up top i mean it was i was very lucky amru who was able to bring those contacts in they did such a great job of like bringing lots of really exciting names but i do think you know that's luck and the idea that a producer just has these sort of rich celebrities that they can they can call on is a total myth and, and absolutely not true and i think it's something that like again like perpetuates the myth that producers have these sort of never-ending pockets of money that they can just pull out anything from anywhere which is just not true and I think a lot of people kind of come now to me as a short film producer and sort of say hey like do you you know could you find finance my film and I'm like well let's talk about how we can do that because I don't have any money to pay for your film so if you want to do that then let's let's really think about what that what that means but yeah no I think I think we we did that and then I think actually as the films get better you sort of get more recognition from public financiers who really are the key to the UK sort of film finance um and we're very lucky to have you know the likes of um, BBC Films, Film4, um, BFI who all kind of help nurture um, new and emerging talent and and help to sort of support them in their quest to make films in a very kind of supportive way especially because they are soft money so you know you're not tied into some ridiculous recoupment scheme again if you wanted to share have you had any experiences with producers who say okay we're getting finances who say oh we're going to give you this much money but 
we want this and this from the film? And has that been a struggle? I don't think at the level that I'm working at that that is something that has become apparent. I think when, you know, we're we're trying to finance a a sort of like five to 10 million pound high school teen movie at the minute. And I think that's, that's where that conversation will come in, you know, where we are small fish, small producing fish trying to kind of finance something much bigger. And I think that's the opportunity for bigger places to kind of come in and, and put their mark in. But I think at my level now, I haven't, no, I haven't, I haven't come across that. Fortunately, I'm sure it will come. The more business savvy I get, with, uh, with being a producer, which is, which is part of the challenge. Because you don't learn that either. That's, that's the other skills that you don't learn. And another great thing to have in the business is networking and personal contacts. So you were a big part of the BFI Flair community and you, you volunteered at the festival and then you made all these amazing friends who then ended up being in your films or even producing some of your films, for example, Pompeii. What was it like to be part of these schemes and how did they help? I mean, yeah, the BFI Flair was completely instrumental in my career. It was the most important thing I did. And actually, it's funny looking back as a volunteer on that festival, I sort of sometimes forget that that's what I did because, you know, that was that was an incredible way of getting into these circles that I would not have access to and sort of finding a way into a community of filmmakers, um, but also really good filmmakers, you know, filmmakers who are making lots of exciting work. So I volunteered for three years, I think, and then eventually I got onto the... I had, I think I've had, like, four films in the festival over the last few years, and and that's, like, that was really great to go from someone who was sort of a volunteer to someone who was a delegate to someone who was then... I was on a mentorship scheme, so that was super exciting to be kind of part of... Um, part of the you know the program and and everything that was happening there and sort of being around like-minded people and making like lifelong friends and collaborators and yeah as you said like on Pompeii that was that was basically through the festival one of the directors Matthew I was on the um the mentorship scheme with so you know I think uh, collaborators in in the industry do come and, and go and and actually I'm now working with two other producers on a feature project who I met through flair so yeah it's, it's it's hugely instrumental to to you know find your people and i think that's in any industry you know there's there's so many people out there and you need to kind of find your own tribe and your own people to kind of hold you up and be able to kind of be vulnerable with and ask questions to when you don't know the answers i think that's like a really valuable thing about the flair family and the bfi as well it's just like an entity have been unbelievably supportive to my career over the of my few years six years eight years god i've been doing this longer than i i realize <laughs> so i think it sounds like there's three points there that are instrumental to to your success it looks like finance and, and the backing people that you get involved like this the tribe that you speak of that you, you pull together to make something amazing and also reputation um a lot of the industries we focus on in the episodes just like those this is also one that requ- requires a very well bolstered reputation so you've built this up my first question is what's a lodestar because it's not something i'd heard of before and like tell us about the other accolades you've gained throughout the process a lodestar is a good one it's um so film london who are the kind of london hub for film financing from locations support and training they kindly announced me as a lodestar i think i'm going to just quickly look up what the meaning of a lodestar is because Oh yeah, it's a star that is used to guide the course of a ship. So I think it's kind of like people who've kind of been taking leadership roles and, and have played a role in getting people to a place where they're, I don't know, on a ship. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, pre- that was really exciting to be um, included in that. I actually couldn't make it. I wasn't in the country at the time. So my photos forever missing from, from that. But that was really cool. I'm now on a program with the BFI called the BFI Insight Program, which I've been part of the BFI Insight Program, which is they chose 12 emerging producers to build and teach and train up to kind of bringing their films to market. So the sort of course is structured around kind of developing features. And we just had like a module on on um, development, which was really cool. We sort of spoke to Lee Magaday, who was the producer, one of the producers of The Favourite, who sort of now told us about that amazing journey to get that film made. We had a talk with a brilliant producer of The Assistant called 
Have you seen the assistant Raj? Yeah, no, I saw it at the Berlinale. It's pretty good. Yeah, it was with them. Um, we had so we had a talk with Scott McCauley, who was again super interesting, and like that was that was great. And I think the BFI have been really great, and I love just being on any kind of training course i love to learn because i didn't get like a film school and i think a lot of people did and a lot of people you can kind of tell who knows more in this industry and who's kind of just making it up as they go along obviously in the film industry as most people know who've read a newspaper it is dominated by not only men but also old men and white men and mostly heterosexual men what has it been like navigating this industry as a young woman good question i think it's kind of funny because i never see myself as like i guess i never see myself as like a woman working in this industry i see myself as someone who i mean i do but i don't i guess because i've grown up with my own like understanding of my own sets and because of like people I want to be around and people I want to work with and people I want to learn from. Like I almost see the old guard as something so farcical and so absurd that like, I just try not to let it get to me in that sense. I think, I, I mean, I haven't done any kind of massive jobs where I've really been confronted by the realities of the industry and the way the industry is so taught in one more like kind of not even fractured but just so hierarchical in that sense I think in a way like the BFI are so forward thinking in that kind of representation at least they're trying to be really hard and I think that's where I sort of landed fortunately and I've never had the experience of sort of working in-house a bigger company or or kind of um you know being on that side of things I mean I think you know I think it's it was it's been a really interesting time especially to have just made a short we just made a short film which is about kind of um sexual assault like looking at the film industry and again like talking about Kitty Kitty Green's film which is if you haven't seen Chris it's this brilliant film it's a day in the life of um a sort of uh, development uh, assistant or production assistant working at a big kind of um American production arm and she sort of gets totally gaslit by everyone in her company and and it's just kind of this horrendous realization that so much has gone under the carpet for so long by so many people at the top you know even looking at the fucking ellen show it's actually mad like that these are kind of abuses of power have existed in the industry for so long and it's kind of terrifying and that 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 people haven't felt strong enough to come forward but i am you know as i said like these kind of sets I'd never I, I think it would have been strange to have sort of made things and wanted a very particular type of person you know as you know the kind of the archetypal straight white man to be at the top I mean I, I don't think I've, I think I'm only working with one straight white man <laughs> currently and you know and, that, and we're making a film about a pregnant criminal who like robs little chefs so you know that's like we've sort of interrogated and broken down those those structures i think where the industry is actually really falling apart like i think there's been a huge change um in terms of like female representation i don't think it's good but i think it's getting there but i think you know in terms of like um black and other sort of um minority ethnic groups within the uk getting representation in film especially on film sets it's like that's the biggest problem um i mean that's a huge problem it's about class it's about race it's about you know sexuality as well you know and i think all of those factors really kind of need to be hit on the head to make the industry a better place um and that's something that like is very important to me as, as a producer and 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 i think to a lot of other producers it's you, you know as a producer you often look for like the easiest route it's like a river and you're meandering and you want to find the softest um, the softest path and the, the easiest way to get from A to B but I actually often like breaking down walls and trying to find other ways in so that you can be better than what you want to what you want to say and like actually sort of put your money where your mouth is like it would be wrong for me to kind of talk about all the films that I make and the representation I want to get across in my films if that wasn't reflected on the kind of behind the behind the sort of the blow the line crew and behind the camera so so that's and I think I'm lucky because you know again like we're making films in this era where that is so important and like because I care a lot about the public financiers like I you know I care a lot about making films with BBC films and with Film 4 and with the BFI and I think I want them they they that's such a remit for them so we should be 
building on that when, when making projects. Um, so yeah, it's funny. I mean, the old guard, like it's so weird. It's a weird distinction, but I, I think it also comes back to kind of what I was saying at the beginning that like, I just didn't like, you know, I like, I didn't, I didn't enjoy working in big companies. I prefer kind of being on my own and working on my own and finding my own path in that sense and not necessarily having to like learn from someone who is been doing it their way for a really long time. I'd rather sort of fuck up my way and learn from fucking up my way that that's not the right way to do it rather than watch someone else who perhaps is like, yeah, is sort of an old vanguard of the industry. It's, it's, it's really annoying though. Like I think even today I was talking to some other producer friends about, you know, who holds the keys to the British film industry and is that, and actually there are so few kind of openly LGBT commissioners, especially gay women. There's so many, there's so few people in kind of positions of power who, are able to make these big decisions. And I think that's where we're hopefully heading, that we can start breaking those barriers down and, and, and really changing it because culturally you see what's, you know, we should be seeing what we're seeing in the world, but on screen, like culture catches, like screen and culture catch up with each other so much that they need to be aligned completely. But what's interesting is from the very start, you have made films with a diverse perspective. So people who are, transgender, non-binary, people from different ethnic groups, and a lot of stories focusing on gay men and lesbians. And has this always been an intentional thing from the very start? It seems like you're a bit ahead of the trend because one of your stars, Amru, they're a huge media presence now. I've seen them on uh, Channel 4 News talking about gender or something. So that was quite validating to see like oh that person was in your film six years ago and obviously you're not responsible for one person's success of course but at the same time do you feel like you were a bit ahead of the trend in that respect or was it not something you thought about i think it's funny i mean actually if you look at you know one of my first short films guinea pig you know that was actually very behind the curve <laughs> that was a film about six it's actually a brilliant film. I think it's really funny. But, you know, that's a film about six white middle-class people talking about the death of a guinea pig. And I think, like, my level of excitement about that film compared to the level of excitement I got about, you know, Nightstand or Sunday Morning Coming Down or Sparrow, which, yeah, all those films are, like, messy and they're, like, kind of all over the place. But, but they, they kind of got me excited. And I actually never really thought about, like... I guess I didn't really think so much about being ahead of the curve as much as... But it is kind of annoying now that people... You know, it's not annoying, but it's a bit frustrating when you're like, I've been doing this for for as long as this has been, this has been a kind of conversation. This isn't like, this isn't a trend. It's not trendy to make stuff that's got kind of queer characters whose experience isn't centered on coming out. And it's not trendy to make, you know, films about, I don't know, like race and colonialism and all these other things. It's, it's, it's just films that should have been made a long time ago and deserve audiences in the same way but yeah no it's it's funny to think about you know films that we made and where some of the people went it's actually one of the um the star of uh, the gate of a hundred sorrows is now in the um little mermaid so you know he's prince oh, eric wow. or mermaids yeah which is huge but anyway you know it's funny like people everyone's 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 done really really well yeah i don't think we were necessarily ahead of the curve i don't think we knew what the curve was i think we just wanted to make good movies and and, and it just so happened that, that that's that's where we ended up. And so I feel I can talk a little objectively here as a critic. You talk about these, these early films, Nightstand, Sparrow, and Gate of a Hundred Sorrows. They're, they're okay, but I think there's a huge step up in quality once you get to some of your films, such as If You Knew, um, the latest one, Good Thanks You, is incredible, Ren Boys, and Sunday Morning Coming Down. Did anything happen between those films and the latest films in terms of maybe collaborators in terms of vision and in terms of knowing what you wanted to do on a film set yeah i mean i think the interesting change was when we did rem boys we worked with from london for the first time and i learned what it meant to do development which is a really important part of the producing process so development is essentially when you really interrogate the script and you interrogate the message of the script and the meaning and what you're trying to say and where it's trying to go and I think with Run Boys we went through like 20 drafts to get to the point that we made the film that ended up doing really well but it's funny you know you make a film three times you make it when you're writing it you make it when you're shooting it, and you make it when you're editing it and I think that was kind of the process that we had with that film 
Um, I think, I think, some, I think you know, Harry as a director is incredibly talented, and working with him was such a huge part of my kind of creative process. You know, that was Remboise was our second firm, Pompeii was our third, which we did with Marco and Matthew, um, who are also brilliant. And I think it, you know, it's, it's it, it, it kind of was just learning to sort of have an opinion and to say, actually, is that what we want to do? And that that's been the kind of thing that I've learned the most how to do is. Like reading scripts is I find quite hard because you really have to concentrate for quite a long time and you're sort of reading a small novel every time you open a script and then you have to understand meaning and interrogation of character and tone and structure and I think you kind of learn over, t- over time to trust your instincts in that sense and you learn how to kind of t- to say no or to say yes or to try something different. Um, I also think there was a lot of learning in like you know the the world of music videos and like having seen how to edit stuff and how to kind of put stuff together and what makes a really good film. And, and I think also, yeah, so I think that was an important part of the process to get to that point. But yeah, I think, you know, after, after Ren Boys, I do feel that I now kind of have cracked a bit almost what a good short film is and what it can do in a really short amount of time. But I think where I'm learning is definitely in the more of the like documentary space. So you know, I've worked a lot in, in fiction and, and then did that brilliant short with Stroma called If You Knew, which was shot over a day. It's about these two brothers who are profoundly deaf and they had the most incredible relationship and they hadn't seen each other for six months and ended up spending a day together on Canby Island, driving their mopeds around. And like that was a very exciting new project to work on because it was super short, but was the sort of first time I was really working um, in a, in a documentary form so it's kind of my rules then went out the window a bit in terms of what I thought I knew what a short film needed to be in terms of fiction so yeah I guess I guess they, yeah they did get better the shorts thank god imagine <laughs> well talking about this evolution of the quality of the films how much has this had to do with the cast because I mean I was pretty shocked when I went through your your work you've worked with one of my favorite actors which is Michael Ward on the um who's on the most oh, recent recent series of Top Boy yeah amazing amazing actor um and for those who haven't seen the latest uh, series of Top Boy you need to how important is it and how difficult is it to draft in up and coming actors yeah so I think actually that's also the moment that it changed so I think you know, if you look at the other short films that we did, we never had a casting director. And when we worked on Remboys, we worked with a casting director for the first time, a woman called uh, Lara Manwaring, who was just incredible, so good at kind of finding really talented people and lots of incredible actors and knew who the right people were for this job. And you sort of underestimate the, I, I think I underestimated for a long time the role that the cast played in. Um, and then, you know, with, with Good Thanks Hugh, where we had Michael Ward, that was that was amazing because he hadn't done, you know, he hadn't done Top Boy. He had done Top Boy. Top Boy hadn't been released when he shot the film. He hadn't done Blue Story, which hadn't been released when he shot the film. So we kind of, you know, he came into the casting room and he gave such an outstanding um, audition. And the casting director, a woman called Isabella Dauphin, was like, you guys have to trust me. He's he's going to be really big. And then he won a BAFTA for a newcomer. The, um, you know, the March, the March after we shot the short. So, yeah I think the casting process is so so important it's the most important part of the whole thing because that's what people come to watch you know they come to see an authentic character who who can actually um deliver on you know the ideas behind the film and I think if you don't have good cast then you you shouldn't bother tell tell us a bit more about that audition as well because that I mean I would have loved to have been a fly on that wall for sure yeah it it was it was really it was really special really special but it's definitely put the pressure on for the features let's talk about some features that you're working on the gap between the difficulty between making a short is even easier than going from shorts to features because features are like 100 times the budget you need to bring in a lot more producers you need longer shoot days you probably need a more professional crew who are going to turn up on time every single day so you get all your days uh, at the right time how has it been trying to develop features and what's what's in the pipeline? I mean, I think the features have taken a pretty long time because I think, you know, it's about finding films that you really want to make and finding people who are at a level where they 
their features are something that people are excited by. I was really fortunate to be on a scheme, also with the BFI, unsurprisingly. I'm obsessed with them, called iFeatures, which is a sort of uh, debut feature lab where you learn everything about how to develop finance um produce sort of indie features in the sort of sub one million pound spectrum and i had a really great project there called maggie which is sort of evolved now beyond the lab and has gone through totally new iteration and it's going to come out as a completely different film but that was a really cool experience to be able to kind of you know unpick a script in a longer form you know i'd not really done much sort of script reading feature script reading and understanding structure of scripts and so that's been like the next learning. Mm-hmm. It's always about upscaling. So the shorts to feature has taken a while to upscale in a way that I feel is, is beneficial. And I think that's why people don't make features when they're, you know, apart from Zoe Dolan. But he's a director. I mean, as a producer, like making a feature when you're super young, it really does help to have time to really think about what you're trying to make and what the story is. Although I am just itching now to make a feature. But yeah, I've got, I've got a few projects that I'm particularly excited about that I'm kind of developing and they're all sort of at various different stages. Most of them are at treatment stage, but some are at kind of like first draft, some are going through all different different durations. But I think my kind of, what I guess what's interesting, the shift from the shorts to the features is the features have to kind of have some kind of commerciality, whereas the shorts just can be whatever you want them to be because they're never going to make money. So it doesn't really matter. And, that, and that's been a, a, new, a new thing to think about is how to actually get finance for and, and to make projects that people are excited by and actually want to go to the cinema to watch. Yeah, so there's this incredible progression from studying at Cambridge to doing shorts to to planning features. And I think there's one accolade that we can't really hide from this, and that's that you are a BAFTA-nominated producer. <laughs> now, when you were sitting in the library and you had your, your fuck it, let's do it moment, did you ever think you would be BAFTA-nominated in something that you you highlighted was just a bit of fun and you, you kind of didn't really know how to do it. No, I, I mean, it's funny. There's a, there's a sort of B-roll to the Gate of the Hundred Sorrows Kickstarter video where I was really cocky and I was like, pay for our, like, <laughs> pay for our film, we'll see you at Sundance. And I had no idea what Sundance was, the film festival. And it was funny, the producer of that, when we did get into Sundance, was like, it's funny because when you were 20 or 21, whatever, you, you did kind of prophesize about that a bit. So it was kind of funny to for that to come around. But I don't think that was ever the plan. You know, I think it, I'm, I'm just so grateful that that is how the plan turned out because that was a kind of watershed moment, I think, in terms of sort of getting industry recognition and, and making that step up and getting in the room to talk about features and getting in the room to talk about bigger projects and for other talent to kind of want to, sort of jump jump in and and be like actually i think it'd be cool to work with you on this and let's kind of figure out how we can how we can make something together so yeah it was it was an amazing it was an amazing time um feels like a really long time ago that was all in like 2018 so like two years ago i mean this year doesn't count this is the worst year for films in the uk without a doubt like the industry is is it's a really kind of bleak prospect across the industry at all levels it is it is not the best time to be a sort of independent producer i wanted to follow up on this because i i know you you got the sort of bafta nomination is it now in a sort of expectation for your next film obviously your your latest film is also in can but sadly it's not in the physical format so that was a bit of a shame but it is in can it's it's got the director's fortnight logo which is one of the sidebars at can but do you feel like now when you make a new short you're like this needs to have some kind of recognition yeah i mean the pressure's 100 percent on i think that's maybe why i've sort of carried my feet a little slowly behind me as i try and embark on a feature because of the pressure that i've kind of put upon my shorts um from the shorts and but I do think in a way you know the talent that I'm working with I have kind of no worries about that and I don't necessarily think I think I think a lot like there's a lot of films but there's also a lot of film festivals and there's a lot a lot of opportunity to have your work seen and I think so long as I don't make a total stinker and you give it a really shit review on whatever whatever you're writing for at the time then I think I'll have done a good job and actually you know 
fortunately as a producer you're kind of have a few you have more lives you have more lives than a director you know you're more you've more chances to kind of fuck up um but it's not really up you know i'm actually not worried i think i was much more worried but i just want to make something now and not think about the festivals because that's bonus stuff you know that's that's not what you that's not what you go out to make films for you make films because you want people to see them and if you see them and they happen to see them online then amazing if you happen to see them at a film festival amazing but and that is the that is obviously the upside of it but it's not the reason we got into it you know i think so much of that work is it doesn't happen online like <clears throat> doesn't happen it's not about the glitz and the glam the so, the whole job is totally unglamorous <laughs> so if it's not about the glitz and the glam do you read the reviews on your own films or do you tend to stay clear from those i love reading the reviews i think they're hilarious there's some, there's some really good ones. I mean, you know, to be honest, Chris, at this point in my career, if anyone reviews my film, I'm going to take it seriously because there's so few, you know, most of them are by Redmond. And it, no, it's, it's nice to read, to read reviews. We, and actually, it's funny, like, I think when we made Remboys, um, Peter Bradshaw, who's sort of the key critic in The Guardian, didn't like our film. He didn't explicitly say that, but he didn't say anything particularly nice about it either. Whereas we just had Guy Lodge, who's another critic saying that Pompeii was, you know, his favourite of the Sundance London Film Festival. So I, I think I think reviews again are like, it's just opinion, you know. And actually, to be honest, like, if I made a film like Cats and that was like a, just an absolute shit show, I'd still be quite happy because people are like going out to the cinema to see your film. And it's it brought so much joy to people to see such an atrocity. So... Yeah, I, I'm. I like reviews. I'll, I will read them, even if it is the the death of me in the long run. All press is good press in the end, right? Because it gets your name out there. Well, exactly. Um, one question I was just curious of is someone that's obviously gained the experience now, and like you said, quite honestly, that you didn't necessarily have all the experience you needed when you started. I know a lot of people that do short films and a lot of creative things on the side of their jobs, but they tend to be hobbies. Now, what would you say to an on the side listener that would be keen on on transitioning this hobby into a, into a business venture don't quit your day job with your hobby unless your hobby takes off you know i think i if i was just doing the hobby stuff then i don't think i would be in a position where i'm even like talking <laughs> to you guys about what i'm doing because it's I, I i think i mean it depends you know how entrepreneurial minded you are i think just kind of go for it and make sure that whatever you're doing is sustainable. I think what the kind of global pandemic has shown is that the film industry is really unsustainable, even though it's one of the biggest, you know, um, what's the word? Industries in the UK, yet it's the most, you know, it's deeply unsustainable. You know, if, if, if we stop production, that's it. That's like a lot of people out of jobs. So it's kind of interesting how someone, someone trying to sort of go after their dream, I would just say, yeah, go for it, but like make sure you have a backup plan. You know, like I, I'm fortunate that if, if something goes wrong with, with with the company and if I was just focusing on the company alone, then then I would probably not be in a very safe position. But at least I can kind of fall back on the commercial stuff. But even that is totally unsustainable because I'm at the mercy of someone sending me a, a job to bid on or to pitch on. It's never, never a good time. To, there's also that as well, isn't it? It's like it's never a good time to just like follow what you want to do in life. Just get on with it. Film industry is a physical industry. It's not something you can do from your own house, although some people have tried. And now with coronavirus, it really means that a lot of film shoots have cancelled. I know that you had jobs that you were on set one day, then the next day you're off the set. How has it been to try and stay creative during lockdown? Because I've seen one of your more creative, funny shorts in lockdown. And how was that kind of experience? It's a really hard time to be creative because it's really hard to sort of see between the lines and and there's a lot going on in the world that's really kind of horrendous and I think that's been like relentless this year even before the pandemic I feel that you know 2020 is a year that is going to go down in history as being complete shit show I think trying to stay creative is just about like the people around you and like the people who you're working with and Theo who's one of the directors I'm working with is such a positive force and he always wants to find a solution to something so was like I want to make a short I want to do a short I like, and he he just wrote it and that was amazing he just sort of got on with it and and, and and we made something really funny and you know I think 
I know a lot of people who've written scripts in lockdown and managed to do lots of things, but then I know a lot of people who haven't done anything. And I think it's, it's a, it's a hard kind of one to judge on because it's very easy to be, you know, I think it totally depends on your situation and where you were and who you locked down with. And, you know, I think it's easy to sort of romanticize it as an experience for people, but actually I think for a lot of people it was incredibly difficult. So, and I think we're about to see a pretty intense mental health crisis in the UK, but you know, good to be positive. (laughs) So talking about positive things and the future, what's next for the company? We are developing um, some features. We are trying to get them off the ground and reading lots of new writing, which I'm really excited by, and reading lots of treatments I'm really into. Um, We've got a feature with BBC Films that we're just in the middle of finalising all the contracts on with a director who's really great, who's from New York. Well, she's from Wales and now lives in New York, and she's just really cool so i'm so totally excited about working on that i also optioned this teen book which is a really fun high school romance movie about these teenage girls who sort of bring down the patriarchy in their school because of the sexual misconduct of the PE teacher and in turn end up falling in love it's like a sort of love simon for a female audience and that's really fun and so that and i'm making that with some some really couple of really close friends of mine who are both producers and it's nice to be sort of balancing the darker stuff on my slate, the kind of more like, you know, debut indie features that might, you know, play Critics Fortnite or Critics Week or like, you know, play like a, a midnight slot somewhere with the kind of more popcorn straight to Netflix stuff, which is good. I'm just finishing a short documentary I made in Sierra Leone just before lockdown that I produced. The directors went out and shot this really great documentary about the printing press, which is a sort of yeah, sh- very short sort of um, observational doc. So I'm trying to finish that up. Shooting, hopefully trying to shoot this BBC film, short film, which we're doing maybe in a couple of months, depending on the like pandemic, which would be great to shoot something this year properly. But yeah, we just sort of keep on going and hope something sticks eventually. Well, we obviously want people to be able to find you, Sora. So where can they find Try Hard Films? Where can they find you? Instagram, Twitter, etc. Let us know. You know, our website isn't that exciting, but www.try-hard.co.uk and then you can find me on Twitter, at tryhardfilm, and also on on Instagram, tryhardfilm. But it is tryhardfilm, not tryhardproduction, easily confused. So usually, Red, you ask me at the end of each podcast how I thought it went and what have I learnt, etc. But today you and I have decided that we're going to switch it around because I think it's going to be more interesting asking you about whether you enjoyed grilling your sister and asking her loads of intimidating questions. So how did you find it today, mate? I think it was really interesting because usually when I talk to family on Zoom, because I live in Berlin, family lives in in London, it's usually like a group call. But now it's one of the few times in the last few months I've really had like a long chat with my sister. So it's really nice to hear what she's been up to and really the process behind some of the, the films as well, because... I knew a lot of the stories already, but there's some details. For example, this this short film at Cambridge, which you'll have to send me, Saha. You haven't which, seen it? Oh, wow. Well. I might have. I, I don't remember. But these, these kind of details, which just add that sort of extra layer to the company and also just makes me really excited for, for what's coming next and hopefully to be a to help be a part of that journey, for sure. I think this one was a, a great one for me because... The people we've had on the show before have been people that I know and also we've been in the realms of property which is a passion of mine. Um, We've interviewed a friend that I've I've seen the business grow. This one I had no visibility at all and it's the first fully creative concept that we've we've, we've spoken about. Um, I think the fact that you're getting people involved like Surrey and McKellen, Stephen Fry, Michael Ward... I was like a little fanboy just sitting here listening to all these all these people that have been <laughs> casted and I think you've obviously put a lot of graft into it. I think the most exciting thing about this is you were literally at like step one in 2013. You had no idea what you're doing and I think it shows that if you find something that, that drives you, that motivates you and that you have fun doing, then all you need to do is just take the jump, trust the people around you and... Yeah, back yourself, because it sounds like it's been an incredibly exciting journey. And I don't know how you're going to top a BAFTA nomination. I don't know how I top a, top a BAFTA nomination. Oh, I just get a nomination. Yeah, just get more, just get more. 
that was on the side with me Reverend Bacon and my co-host Chris Adams you can find us on Apple Podcasts Spotify Podcasts and also on SoundCloud be sure to also follow our Ko-Fi page if you want to support the podcast until next time bye bye